Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Premiering October 9th exclusively on demand is the new detective thriller Hotel Noir, starring Rufus Sewell, Carla Gugino, and Danny DeVito. You can watch the first 10 minutes of Hotel Noir for free at facebook.com slash Hotel Noir Film. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The art house is now in your house. This podcast is also brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash SVU. New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Coming up on this week's show, Matt and I journey into the Mutara Nebula to have a spaceship duel as we discuss Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Uh, I think technically, Allison, the title is pronounced Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan! I'm glad we got that in there early because just, I knew I knew it would come out so- sooner or later. Just so. FYI. Just yeah, thank get, you. Just making sure. Anyway, later in the show, we'll bring you cue shots, our look at some of the current offerings on various streaming and VOD sites, all centered around a common theme. Inspired by the wrath of you-know-who, we thought we'd run through some other memorable examples of villain costumes in the movies, but then we were worried we'd get a little too caught up in speculating whether or not Ricardo Montalban was wearing a prosthetic chest in his role as Khan. Yay or nay, Allison? Weigh in. I say nay. I think that's all natural. I think there's nothing natural about it in, <laughs> in more ways than one. Instead, we thought we'd take a look at sequels that are better than the original films they follow. But first up is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight one title that's new on VOD and give you a rundown of other notable films new on demand on cable. This week, instead of our usual recommendation, we have an interview that Matt did with Sebastian Gutierrez, who is the director of Hotel Noir, which is available on demand starting Tuesday, October 9th. That's right. It was a really interesting conversation with him, actually, about his new movie, about film noir in general. And since our theme this week is sequels, and since Sebastian Gutierrez has actually directed a sequel, which is 2010's Electrolux, which was a sequel to Women in Trouble... I thought I would actually ask him about sequels as well, and we talked a little bit about that. How do you make a good sequel? What are the good sequels? So listen to that later. But first, we did talk about Hotel Noir, his new film about the various residents of this glamorous 1940s Los Angeles hotel. I know. I gotta tell you about Felix. 
He's the real protagonist of this tale. Main thing you gotta know, he was a great detective. But then he fell for the wrong kind of dame. Who doesn't? And he stole some money in order to get away with her, to live happily ever after. He planned the whole thing perfectly. Outwitted his opponents, misdirected like a magician, switched the bag, lost the tail, and waited for her. What happened next? Next? And those residents are played by a pretty impressive cast, including Rufus Sewell, Carla Gugino, Rosario Dawson, Malin Ackerman, and Danny DeVito. And the hotel itself is such an interesting and very evocative place in the film, and it looks so beautiful, that I began the interview by asking uh, Gutierrez whether or not it was inspired by a particular hotel he's visited. No, it was always a sort of mythical film noir um Actually, more of a, in my mind, much more of a downbeat, run-down hotel than the location we actually ended up shooting in, which is actually quite nice. And we had to make it look a little less uh, spectacular, which was the Biltmore Hotel downtown L.A., home of many, you know, movies have been shot there. Um, so, no, it was more the, um, you know, the hotel across the uh, train station and in my mind from a 1940s, 1950s movie. More of a, a state of mind than a physical place. I read you somewhere saying that film noir is your favorite genre. Is that is that true? Yeah, I think yeah. I mean, when push comes to shove, you know, it's never it's always silly playing those games. Like if you could only watch one kind of movie, but I do go back to them. I think as a as a sort of invented dimension that resonates with me a lot more than so-called serious movies. And also because I think Film noir, what's interesting is that at the time, you know, it came to being for a variety of reasons that have been explained better by much smarter people. But some kind of combination of post-war men coming back home, women having acquired certain, you know, uh, autonomy while the men were gone and the men being intimidated by that. All sorts of things shifting in society. And at the same time, these expat uh, directors, mostly European directors who had, you know, come from Europe running away from you know, the political situation in Europe being given very low budgets to make these things. So what's interesting to me is that they were trying to be quote unquote realistic by painting with these shadows. They just had no money for it. So all these cool shots of two people looking out a window and not having a reverse shot was simply because they didn't have the set for the reverse shot. So I'm fascinated by them trying to be gritty yet stylized becoming such uh, a dreamlike or nightmare-like fantasy that still exists now and i think the influence of noir is huge i mean it doesn't have to be just detective stories obviously breaking bad is absolute noir as far as i'm concerned noir drama if you really push it and make the stakes higher it becomes melodrama and if you put a gun in somebody's hand as the only way to solve the problems that's film noir so that's what i'm saying when i say that it's my favorite genre it's like yeah i'm more interested in that than a straight-up comedy or a musical or a, or a family drama or, a, or certainly naturalism, whatever that means. Mm. Your films seem to have kind of very complicated storytelling structures. And in this case, you kind of go from one narrator to the next to the next. It's almost like a, down a, a rabbit hole or something. We have a story within a story within flashbacks and all that sort of thing. When you're writing that sort of screenplay, what comes first? Do you just have all these different stories that you want to tell and you have to figure out how to fit them together? Or... Do you have the structure, and then you have to kind of find the the individual stories? No, I'd say more the more the different stories, not the structure. I mean, from a very practical standpoint, Hotel Noir, like Girl Walks Into a Bar, that movie that I did for YouTube last year, came from a budget and location 
uh, challenge before anything was written. Mm -hmm. So that story, by necessity, then becomes sort of episodic, in the case of Girl Walks Into a Bar, more episodic than this one, which is hopefully more like a regular movie. But what was so interesting about film noir as a genre is that because in film noir it's already built in that there is no future. The past is always crashing into the present, and things like voiceovers are are part of the are, are part of what the movie is. It became a very natural place in which to set this. There's some um, formal challenges in the script here because without giving too much away. Uh, regarding the movie, it is a sort of Russian doll structure, as you say. It's a story inside a story inside a story, and it has multiple narrators, which is always really tricky to do because, um, well, because you're not supposed to, <laughs> because you're not supposed to have that many different points of view in a movie. You run the risk of seeming really wishy-washy and not knowing what you're trying to tell. Film noir itself because it is taking a, a genre that in theory we're all familiar with we all remember these kinds of movies even if we're too young for them from watching them on tv um the idea was can we take this dream state that we all recognize these archetypes the the femme fatale and the cop and the partner and this and that and try and apply modern preoccupations to what the characters are going through so that it doesn't become a spoof or a parody which is tricky and also lethal because the great film noir parody was already made which was dead men don't wear plaid which is a great great movie that works outside of the old film clips that they're showing so that was sort of what i was watching out for i was like i have to make a movie different enough than dead men don't wear plaid which is a movie that i love even though i do want to inject humor and have many stories being told at once that's sort of a roundabout way of answering your question but it, it definitely came from i had different ideas for characters how do these stories all connect if they were forced to crash into each other on the same night mm. uh, in general i thought the cast did a great job of kind of capturing that 1940s flavor what was the direction to them how do you how do you direct someone to get into that sort of noir vibe it's interesting um as soon as we were on set I think we all knew what the trap falls were. The trap falls were, let's not make an artifact that does not, as I said before, that does not have anything to do with a modern audience. Why are we doing that? Like, right. there's no reason to... We didn't have the time nor the money to replicate it perfectly, so that couldn't be the exercise. Um, we talked about different movies that influence this movie, and I certainly always... I have no shame about telling actors, watch this, this, and that. It's especially helpful with actresses to show them... Uh, performances by male actors saying, watch what this person is doing here and what this person is doing that. And these are good tips of what to do. But the truth is, as soon as we were on set and those monitors were switched to black and white, everybody got into the mood of the thing. It was like, because you realize that nobody in the cast or crew had done a black and white movie. So a lot of the time was spent looking at the monitor going, wow, it looks just like a film. I'm like, okay, <laughs> but now we have to make sure that it's a good movie. But everybody, once you put the costume on and you had those sets were like I said, we were working in a practical location the entire time, the Biltmore Hotel, but it even looks like a set. So there are shots in the movie where Carla and Rufus are talking in this in this hotel room, and behind them, it looks exactly like a backdrop, but it is downtown L.A. at night, perfectly lit for us. We didn't do anything. We're just pointing the camera over there. So it was very easy for everybody to get into the mood of it. Uh, people who've seen your previous movies will recognize a lot of actors. You work with uh, sort of – you have the, your own little repertory company almost at this point. Uh, you know, Carla Gugino, Danny DeVito, Rosario Dawson, Malin Ackerman. So – what does it take to get into that kind of group that I see popping up in your in your movies over and over? What are you looking for in, in these actors? Well, I should say I have always liked directors that have companies. Paul Thomas Anderson has a company. Robert Altman has a company. Uh, Almodovar has a company. Bergman had a company. It just makes sense to me that 
But when you only have 15 days, you don't have a lot of time to waste. So you really need people who are willing to go to war with you and laugh and have fun. So you develop the shorthand with these people that you end up then seeing sides of them that other people don't see. So, for example, Malin is somebody who I find so talented, but most people see her as this sort of, you know, Cameron Diaz-like modern comedy, Ben Stiller kind of girl. And nobody, and she would complain that nobody would see her as somebody who could be in a period piece. And of course, to me, her face is absolutely, she looks like Jean Harlow or something. It's absolutely period. So I think the benefit of working with people over and over is you say, okay, Danny DeVito is usually cast as just a funny person, but what if you give him part where he can be poignant? So from that very practical standpoint, it just saves you a lot of time. Carla is sort of the centerpiece of this company for obvious reasons. So the things are built around her. And, uh, and we, you know, after you've been in Hollywood for a while, you realize this is sort of, it's not even an open secret. There's not that many movies that are made. There's many actors that are not working. The same actors keep working. All the other ones are just there. And if you write them something good and you ask for very little of their time and you treat them with respect, even the ones that you don't know, this is not all people that I know, but the ones that I don't know tell other people, hey, I worked on this movie and it was a really good experience. You should check it out. And we've had people like that come in, Josh Brolin, Julianne Moore, and other movies, Tim Oliphant. And it's you realize you find, like-minded people find each other and it makes it you know, a lot it's almost like in Hollywood, they've tried to make it less fun. Um, but the truth is, if you get to the right people, it's a blast. And everybody's very serious about it and very professional. But um, but it feels like, you know, like you're playing, which is what it should be. We've all had real jobs. It shouldn't feel like that. Uh, one thing I, I really admire about the way you've been making these movies lately is that you seem fearless, basically, about experimenting with new ways of distribution. Your last movie you already mentioned was on YouTube. This one is going to be on demand. I'm wondering, when I hear so many filmmakers saying, you have to see my movie in the theater, you know, they're, very, they're holding on to that theatrical experience as a, as a precious thing. Why are you more willing to try different things? It's, again, it's, a, it's completely out of necessity and desperation. <laughs> uh, I love movie theaters. I would love to see a movie. And this movie, this black and white, you know, uh, 240 aspect ratio, I, the ideal place to see it is in a movie theater with great surround sound because it actually has really good sound. But... You know, the reality is there's very few movies that play in movie theaters, and these are studio movies, and they're mostly PG-13 movies about superheroes and, and remakes. And I understand the financial reasons why that has happened, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be able to make movies that we know people want to see and figure out where to show them. So the exercise with YouTube was... You know, people think YouTube, people are going to be watching a movie on an iPhone. And this is nonsense. Everybody has huge TVs that they, they, you know, they connect their iPad to the TV and you can watch it as if it's a regular screen. It's, in fact, the better size screen than many art house theaters. So <laughs> that's a myth. Um, the, in the situation with showing this movie on demand, the truth is this minute in the independent world, which the, the financial distribution model has completely broken down, the DVD market doesn't exist, which is what used to carry these movies. The theatrical is mostly a marketing and or vanity thing because most money is not made in the theaters and most of the money is being made for, from video on demand. Everybody watches movies at home. So we were approached very early on. We sat down with in demand and, uh, and they have been extremely supportive as to how to market and release this movie. And it became, you know, there was no question about it. It was a better deal than what the independent distributors were offering us. It left me in a situation where if I want to put the movie in theaters, it's up to me, but it, it, it left me with all those other rights, the theatrical rights, the iTunes, Netflix, all those things I can go and get myself. It's not ideal. You'd rather somebody else be taking care of this for you, but it's what's happening now. There's all these 
companies propping up, you know, tug and gather and all these different ways of getting audiences to, by crowdsourcing or crowd interest, be able to see movies. And I think at the end of the day, what's happened is that movies used to be, and we're probably the last generation, that movies used to be a community thing. Everybody went to the movie theater to see a movie, and now it's become a bit of an underground movement. It's like I run into you and I go, hey, have you heard about this movie, whatever, The Raid, A Separation, you should check it out. It's like a strange subterranean deal. And that's not a bad thing. It's just a different thing. One part of our podcast always has a theme, a different theme, where we make recommendations. And this episode is going to be about sequels, good sequels. Oh, boy. You've made a sequel. I want to know, yeah. but I want to know sort of uh, how does someone go about building a better sequel? How do you approach it? What's the, I mean, what's the key to I making a good one? There, um, wow. I have so many obvious thoughts on this, but the first is, and I think Bill Goldman's the one that said this, nobody ever made a sequel that wasn't for the money. I understand from a writing standpoint and I've, and I've fallen into the temptation. I think anybody who creates characters that they really like want to see them in a different situation. Right. But I think rule number one is if you love Men in Black, watch it again. Don't watch Men in Black 2. It's as simple as that. And I was like, if you love that movie, boy, watch it again. If you love 12 Monkeys, watch it again. It's fantastic. It's a good movie is better the second time, right? So from that standpoint, how to make a better sequel I don't know that I'm, – I'm, so I'm trying to – so we should discuss what are the good sequels right. then. That's right? the next question. So the good sequels are Road Warrior. Obviously, mm-hmm. it's a great sequel. Yep. It's you know more remake than sequel, but it's like a, it seems like that and Evil Dead 2 were both remakes of the original. Um, you know, Godfather 2 is the one that's always used as an example. The truth is I think Godfather 1 is better. It's a it's a forgivable sin that Coppola. I wouldn't want to delete it from the from history. Whereas obviously Godfather, Godfather three, three is terrible. Could, could it's terrible. Be. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. All right, I will. I'll let you go with this last question. After people see your movie and maybe they're itching to go and watch some more film noir, what are some uh, recommendations uh, from some titles you would you God, would suggest? There are so many, but it, obviously you have to start with the foundations. So you have to start with Double Indemnity, Billy Wilder. You know, a perfect movie. I think it was Woody Allen who said if he didn't need to see another movie, that was the movie to see. That movie just works. My favorite film noir is um, Out of the Past, which is, uh, you know, Robert Mitchum and Kirk Douglas. And it's it shouldn't by any stretch of the imagination work because it's a very talking movie. So is Hotel Noir. Um, but it really packs a punch and it's fantastic. Um, the original The Killers, actually both versions of The Killers are great, but the original, the one with Ava Gardner and uh, and Burt Lancaster is great. The remake of that, which was made for TV and it's in color, I don't know if you've ever seen it, the Don Siegel one, Don yep. Siegel who's one of my favorite directors, which looks like crap. I mean, it literally looks like the walls are cardboard that are going to fall apart. Also packs a punch, uh, bizarrely, because the cast of the movie is so incredible, and so you have in a single frame... John Cassavetes, who's about to become the biggest symbol of independent filmmaking, um, Ronald Reagan playing a villain who's going to, you know, <laughs> be the president, Angie Dickinson and Lee Marvin. So this is like four icons. That it's it's almost like a like a monster mash up. Like these people should not be sharing the same frame. So that movie is interesting too, just because it's so bizarre. But there, God, there's many. And then the influence of film noir in movies like Sweet Smell of Success, which is not a film noir technically, but it has all the great dialogue and all the great shots. Uh, I mean, you could just go on and on and on. Well, Sebastian Gutierrez, the film is Hotel Noir. Indeed. It was a pleasure talking to you, sir. Good luck with it. Likewise. Thank you so much. So out of those recommendations, you just heard from Sebastian Gutierrez, Double Indemnity is available on Amazon, iTunes, and Vudu. Out of the Past is available on Vudu, and both versions of The Killers are available on Amazon for purchase only, not rental. So 
There you All go. Right. Well, Hotel Noir is available on demand starting Tuesday, October 9th. Also new on demand, we have A Cat in Paris, which is a French animated film that was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Animated Feature last year. You know, the prize went to Rango, but the inclusion of this film and Chico and Rita, which was another small foreign language film, was kind of nice in a category that tends to be dominated by these giant studios. The film's about a cat, a cat burglar, and a little girl, and it will become available on demand on Tuesday, October 9th, same day it's released on DVD. 28 Hotel Rooms is the directorial debut of actor Matt Ross, who, among many other things, played Albie Grant on uh, Big Love and stars Chris Messina, who's been uh, everywhere lately, including Ruby Sparks, Argo and The Mindy Project, alongside Marin Ireland, who is an actress who's gotten a lot of attention for her work on stage. And the film offers 28 one night glimpses into the relationship between the two characters who initially only meet up uh, when they're traveling for work. That's available on demand starting Tuesday, October 9th, actually ahead of its release in theaters on November 9th. And finally, Price Check is a comedy starring Eric Mabius as a man working in an office of a failing supermarket chain. And Parker Posey, who plays his new boss, a woman who provides a much needed jolt of energy for the company, but who also might be crazy. Something that Posey <laughs> plays really well. You've seen the film or you're just saying in general? I'm just saying in general. Okay, okay. Uh, and uh, the film also stars stand-up comedian Amy Schumer, which I'm interested to see. And it will be available on demand on Thursday, October 11th, ahead of its November 16th premiere in theaters. Allison, as we mentioned right at the top of the show, we're very excited to have Audible joining us as a sponsor this week. And Audible.com is the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature and featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers. And for our listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service, and you can pick whatever you want. But if you want my recommendation, would you like my recommendation, Allison? I would. I'm sure you would never be able to predict this, but if I could pick one title for you this week... It would be Total Recall, <laughs> My Unbelievably True Life Story by Arnold Schwarzenegger. The audiobook is narrated by Stephen Lang, one of the stars of Avatar, or as <laughs> Mr. Schwarzenegger princes, Avada, featuring the author himself reading select passages. Excellent. Yes, so this is his, his memoir, his autobiography, charting his whole life from growing up in Austria, becoming a bodybuilder, becoming a movie star, becoming the governor of California. His, his various personal troubles, which are well documented. Uh, I've, I've been uh, going through this book since I got it, pouring over it like a Talmudic scholar. <laughs> it's an excellent read. It has some very Schwarzeneggerian phrasing. It's clear. I mean, he has a, he has a ghostwriter with him, but clearly he, it, it, was, it was written at least in part <laughs> by him. It certainly has the, uh, the feel of certain Schwarzeneggerian phrases. It's a, it's a wonderful book for fans of Schwarzenegger, which... Probably our listeners at this point are vaguely aware of. That would include me. For a free audiobook of your choice, including Total Recall, go to audiblepodcast.com slash SVU. That's audiblepodcast.com slash SVU. All right, let's go to cue shots now. And our theme once again this week are sequels and specifically better sequels. Sequels that outpace the original film in some way. And let's just dive right into the picks, Allison. What's your first superior sequel. Okay, my first one is Before Sunset. 
the 2004 film directed by Richard Linklater. It is streaming on Amazon and Xfinity Stream Picks. And, you know, uh, Before Sunrise is a very good film. Uh, I certainly would not uh, argue that it's it's lacking. But I think that it's also about something that comes pretty easily to you when you're the age of the characters in the first installment, you mm-hmm. know, which is that you don't have money, but you have this time. You have time and freedom time to kind of while the night away talking with a stranger that you might feel this connection to. And Before Sunset is so much more bittersweet and complicated because the characters are older. They're looking back at that moment and kind of realizing that it was something rare and special, but also now have have different are at different places in their lives. The film plays out in real time. The clock is ticking once again, ticking like even more so than than it is in the first film. Revisiting the characters, it's really interesting to see how time has worked on them. They're both in relationships they're not particularly happy about, uh, you know, that Jesse is married and has a kid. They talk about what happened, whether they ever tried to reconnect. And it's not just beautiful in that, like, they walk, they're walking through this, you know, beautiful cityscape, but it's also kind of beautiful in, I think, the realization that comes up about the bravery that these romantic gestures require as you get older, you know, because you accrue responsibilities and people who depend on you. It's much easier, like, when they're young to say, like, we'll hop off the train and spend the night wandering Vienna. It's a it's a pretty easy thing to do. Like and now with both of them having these jobs, having these lives, the desire to kind of spend more time together is so loaded. Did you show up in Vienna that December? No. Uh, did you? No, I couldn't. But did you? I need to know. It's important to me. Why? If you didn't. Well, did you? Oh. Oh, thank God you didn't. <laughs> well, thank I'm God, like, uh, thank God oh you didn't. God. I mean, thank God I didn't oh. and you didn't. I mean, one of us had showed up there alone, and that would have sucked. I know, I know. I was so concerned with that. I, I always felt horrible about not being there, but I couldn't. You know, my grandma died a few days before, and she was buried that day, December 16th. She that died day. The, the one in Budapest? Yes. You remember that? Yeah, I remember everything. Of course, it was in your book. <laughs> but anyway, oh, so. I, was about, I was about to fly to Vienna, you know, and, uh, and, I, and we heard the news about her. And, uh, of course, I had to go to the funeral with my parents. Yeah, well, I'm sorry to hear that. I know. You weren't there anyway. Wait. Why weren't you there? I would have been there if I could have. I made plans and... Wait. You better have a good reason. What? Oh, no. No, you were there, weren't you? Oh, no. Oh, that's terrible. Uh, and I think that... Delpy and Hawk do a really wonderful job of portraying this genuine connection while also showing the way that, you know, life can uh, can pull you apart or kind of weigh on that. So uh, I am I'm really excited to see, you know, uh, Linklater, Delpy and Hawk have kind of stealthily shot the third film in this. Before Midnight. Before Midnight. Uh, it's set nine years after, uh, before sunset. And I'm very curious to see where the characters are at this point. But I think that they have managed to build something really nice in this in just showing time, you know, showing how time has played out on the actors as well. So that's uh, Before Sunset, and it's available for streaming on Amazon Instant Video and Xfinity Stream Picks. Okay, that is a very good pick. I'm going uh, to pick for my first choice a movie that was one of our listener choice options last week, which didn't win. 
But uh, I figured, hey, it kind of fits with our theme, so let's talk about it anyway. And that's the 1963 film From Russia with Love, directed by Terrence Young. And it's obviously a sequel to the original James Bond film, Dr. No. And I think what makes it a better sequel is it is a sequel of refinement. You know, when some people say, well, this sequel is so great because it's so different than the previous one. That's not necessarily the case with From Russia with Love. I think by the second film, it was already... The rules of a James Bond movie were already becoming pretty codified, and and they, and they knew kind of where they were going. But even if it's not wildly different, it's just kind of better in every way. You know, Connery's performance is better. The supporting actors understand their roles better. The tone is more precise. The wisecracks, the little one one liners, are kind of snappier and smarter. The action is is better shot. It's more crisp. There are there are some some really nice moments that move that are beyond camp that are just really tense, particularly with the guy who kind of follows Bond throughout the movie. This is played by Robert Shaw, who everyone knows from Jaws, and uh, he's following him throughout the movie. And they have a really intense altercation on a train on the Orient Express. Throw him down there. Any more in the other case? I should imagine so. It's a standard kit. I'll have a look. Put your hands back in your pockets. Keep them there. about the way modern action is shot and it's so choppy and you can't follow it. This scene is so beautifully filmed. You can follow every moment, every cut. It's easy to understand everything that's happening. Every action flows one thing to the next. It's very clear. It was all, it's very carefully acted out. It was pre-planned. It was shot perfectly. So I really admire that about it. Watching it uh, for the a millionth time this week, Allison, I think I finally found the secret to Connery's Bond. It's not that he's unkillable. It's that he's unfazable. Like, even if you <laughs> killed him, he wouldn't give a crap, you know? Like, there's a, there's a scene in the middle of the movie where he gets into this wild fight. And, and at the end of it, what does he, you know, and his life has been threatened multiple times. And what does he do right as this, it's over? He straightens his tie and, you know, fixes his cufflinks. You know, it's like, he's so far beyond the, the ability to care about what's going on. He's just so above it all. And that's, <laughs> that's why we love him. So that's From Russia With Love. It is available on Netflix. All right, for my next pick, possibly a controversial one. Ooh. Yeah, I, though I, it's funny to describe this as controversial. <laughs> uh, it's Hot Shots Part de. Oh, this is going to be controversial. I know, 1993, streaming on Netflix, uh, directed by John Abrahams, who's a co-director of Airplane. Yep. Uh, you know, the original 1991 Hot Shots... Is a masterpiece. And is primarily a takeoff of Top Gun. Correct. And I think the reason that I... And I'm, I'm going to argue, like, I just personally prefer it. Because okay. I think I can see... Right. I know they they are... People. I'll just say, let me just say, and then I'll get out of your way. They're yes. both masterpieces. Yes. Conti- continue. <laughs> They're like the pinnacles of They're cinema. They're both pinnacles of <laughs> cinematic comedy. I think comedy. it's that, you know, it's primarily a takeoff... The first one is primarily a takeoff of Top Gun. And yes. I think that the reason that I kind of skew towards the other one is because it's a, it's a skewering of... A movie that's already ridiculous? Yeah. Well, or many movies that are, it's more like the kind of, uh, like Rambo, but also like action movies in general, yeah, like kind of muscle movies. Yeah. yeah. And I think that there's just like so much more ripe 
uh, stuff there to be made fun of or, mm-hmm. or, and you know, Charlie Sheen, I was just, I looked a little bit at this film. I didn't get to watch the whole thing again, unfortunately. You poor thing. I know, but Charlie Sheen actually does like, is a pretty funny, uh, lead in these movies. He I think is. you forget now that he's become so, such a sitcom star mm-hmm. that like, he was really like, he was had, fantastic. Yeah, he Topper was Harley. Exactly. He was goofy. <laughs> he was funny. He like and was really muscly in this movie. Like he yeah. actually built himself up to be like a an action movie star. Yes. Uh, and it gets in these great days. Rambo three, Terminator two. Remember Saddam Hussein melting, reforming. That's right. That's right. Uh, and uh, I was just like I'd forgotten this scene, and it's actually great. Like kickboxer in the early scene, he uh, his opponent like dips his hands in resin, you know, as they do, and then dips them in like glass. <laughs> And then he dips his hands in caramel sauce. Yes, it's like a Sunday bar. Yes, and then into M&M's. Uh-huh. And then he's not sure what to do next. And the whole crowd's like, gummy bear sprinkles! <laughs> which is like so ridiculous and awesome. So, you know, I think that both films are pinnacles of cinema. Agreed. Thank you. But, thank you. Uh, but I think that I do kind of lean towards this one because I think it may be dumber and funnier. against 3,000. Is he a madman? I guess he figures the odds are in his favor. Machine. Charlie. Hot shots. Part due. So that is Hot Shots Part 2, available for streaming on Netflix. Uh, yeah, I guess we have to do a show that's sequels that are just as wonderful as the originals. And then <laughs> Hot Shots Part 2 would be an appropriate one. But I'll let you have it just because Thank you. I'm Thank glad you. you're recommending it under any circumstances <laughs> because it's a movie that deserves far, far more attention. All right, my next pick is Blade 2 from 2002, directed by Guillermo del Toro, available on iTunes and Vudu. And here I think is a nice kind of counterexample to one of the pitfalls of sequel making. So sequels come out there, follow up to a previous film, one that's always successful. That's why we're making a sequel. Now, oftentimes the first movie is the work of very successful creators. And almost as oftentimes those very successful creators, they leave before we make the second movie. And then someone else comes in. But the catch is because the first film established the world, the rules, the look, that they have to go in and then essentially ape the first film. So sequels are, like, by their nature, when in these sorts of situations, they're impersonal at best, and they're basically like cinematic impersonations at worst. Right. And that's why I think a lot of sequels kind of stink. But the counterexample here is Blade Two. The first Blade was based on the Marvel comic book and is kind of the forgotten instigator of this wave of comic book movies. You know, it was sort of Blade was a big hit, and then X-Men was a big hit, and that kind of cemented this ongoing superhero trend. The first film was directed by Stephen Norrington, and he sort of set the tone. Then what Del Toro did when he came in, and what he did better than the vast majority of new directors when they come into a franchise, is he balanced the demands of the franchise. He, you know, it looks like the first Blade. It, it, it feels like a sequel, but he also made it a Guillermo Del Toro film, in quotes, you know? So in the film, Blade 2, or I guess he's still called Blade. I, I guess the movie is called Blade 2. <laughs> Uh, Wesley Snipes is a half-human, half-vampire vampire hunter, right? And he has to team up with vampires in this case to take on this 
like new breed of evil super vampires called Reapers. And from the moment you meet one of these Reapers, you're, you're in a Guillermo del Toro movie. You know, the vampires are scary, but, you know, they're vampires. At this point, vampires are familiar. They're, also, they're like sexy vampires. And I feel like he kind of rebukes that mm-hmm. with his his villain. Right. And the Reapers are like straight out of nightmares. They have these bald heads. They're very pale. They have these strange eyes. And they have these jaws that like, I don't I don't know if you've seen Blade 2, Allison, but they oh, unfold. Yes. Kind of like a Venus flytrap on steroids mixed yep. with some kind of snake. And they almost like engulf. Instead of like sucking on someone's neck, it's almost like they engulf like yeah, a... Yeah, well, like the jaw opens. Right? Yeah, There's like, like breaks a line in the middle. Down. Yeah, it's really disturbing. Yeah, they just turn victims into like meat croutons. It's awful. So... You know, he, I mean, Del Toro kept all the shtick you want from the first Blade, like more of it. There's plenty of fighting. There's plenty of martial arts. You get Chris Christopherson being all gruff and limping. And Wesley Snipes being gruff as well. And being gruff without limping, yes. yes. And then there's just this whole added layer of nightmare mythos and terror and just the tiniest bit of wonder, too, because that's what Del Toro does. So I think it's it's a really good film. It's a better film than the first movie. It's a very good sequel, and it's a very good Guillermo del Toro film. So that's Blade 2, available on iTunes and Vudu. Okay, and my next pick is The Devil's Rejects 2005 film, which is rentable on Amazon, Android, YouTube, Vudu, and Blockbuster, uh, directed by musician-turned-filmmaker Rob Zombie. And I think in this case, what you see is also just Zombie becoming a better filmmaker. Mm-hmm. You know, his first film was the 2003 House of a Thousand Corpses, and it clearly, it like has, it's almost burdened by the films that he loves. It's, uh, you know, it's almost this like formalist exploitation movie mm-hmm. that's like very, it owes a lot to the 70s horror films, particularly the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, because it's got, it's about like two couples who are captured and then tortured by this backwoods family, the Firefly family. What police have uncovered reads like this. Words can't describe it. We here, we are playing on a level that most will never see. You're gonna start to kill him. You best start it right here. And I, he does a lot that, uh, like, kind of, of in terms of homage to the '70s films, and to the point where it's almost it's it feels a little trap, like stuck in itself. Which, and, and I, you know, I mean, I know that that film has also built up a following, but there's a reason that The Devil's Rejects was the one where people suddenly were like, maybe we should take Rob Zombie seriously as a filmmaker. This is like it's much, you know, it's. In the storyline, it, it takes the Firefly family out and has them being chased by state troopers, bounty hunters, and a Texas sheriff who uh, turns out to be just as brutal as they are. And it really just creates this world of just chaos that's incredibly disturbing and also just very well shot. You know, it uh, it uses seventies films as well as a, as a as a touchstone, but kind of in a broader sense. And there's almost like Bonnie and Clyde, like outlaws on the run sense and it's incredibly dark and really violent as well but it's a little less of a traditional horror movie and just more of this like kind of uh really sadistic action sad action movie yeah Yeah. i mean neither of them is what you would call an uplifting story but Mm -hmm. i think that the devil's rejects is significantly better and also does a little more with the characters and has a great ending set to free bird so I think that in this case, it was zombie learning more about filmmaking and that you can see a distinct improvement from that first film to the second one. 
So that's The Devil's Rejects, which is available for rent on Amazon, Android, YouTube, Vudu, and Blockbuster. That's a good pick. That's definitely, I prefer the sequel to the original in that case. What's interesting there, compared to what my last pick is going to be, is that there's a sequel that's much more serious than the first film. The first film is kind of cartoonish and, and ridiculous kitschy, yeah. and kitschy. And then the second one is so grimy and dark and sad and, and bleak. My pick is almost the opposite. We've gone from an original movie that was very kind of dark, although cartoonish in its own way, to a sequel that was dark but even more cartoonish, to a second sequel that is just the ultimate in cartoonishness, especially when horror movies are the subject. And that's Army of Darkness from 1992, directed by Sam Raimi. It's available on Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, Vudu, and YouTube. And yeah, you you go from this franchise that started out as this very small, tiny, uh, very dark, almost sadistic kind of torturing the characters before torture porn was a thing, to a second movie that was almost a remake of the first movie, yeah. but just more accomplished. You know, they had more budget, and Raimi had grown as a filmmaker, so now he's got you know more tricks up his sleeve. But still basically the same thing with a, a little bit of kind of a comedic edge to it, just sort of very dark. And then you get to Army of Darkness, where it almost becomes a comedy. You almost take this same character, Ash, played by Bruce Campbell, and the concept of him fighting this endless war against the evil dead. And you set it in medieval times, and you just make him this incredible pompous jerk, insulting <laughs> everyone he meets. Even though he's no, ge- he's no genius, he works in a S-Mart. <laughs> he works in a box chain store. All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. See this? This is my boomstick. The 12-gauge double-barreled Remington, S-Mart's top of the line. You can find this in the sporting goods department. That's right, this sweet baby was made in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Retails for about $109.95. It's got a walnut stock, cobalt blue steel, and a hair trigger. That's right, shop smart. Shop S-Mart. You got that! But uh, that's what I always liked about it. You know, I saw this movie first of the three. I had never seen any of them when I saw this movie, and it blew me away. I thought, this is an amazing, ridiculous comedy. And then I saw the previous ones, and I was like, well, these are great horror movies, but I like this one better. But it doesn't surprise me when – I'm sure this will probably be my controversial pick. I'm sure people who are fans of the original Evil Dead or especially Evil Dead 2 will say, Army of Darkness is an inferior sequel because it, it's not quite as scary – it, it, it doesn't have that same sense of claustrophobia. But to me, that's what I like about it. I like that it's something different, and it's showing how malleable the character is and how, how versatile the director is and also the actor is and how f- much fun they're willing to have with it, how much they're willing to say, well, let's do something else. Let's, let's, uh, let's make an old-fashioned monster movie. Let's do some Harryhausen stuff with these skeletons that are stop-motion. Let's just have lots of great lines. One of the most quotable movies of all time, for sure, in my book. So that's Army of Darkness, available on Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, Vudu, and YouTube. Khan, you've got Genesis, but you don't have me. You are going to kill me, Khan. You're going to have to come down here. You're going to have to come down here. I've done far worse than kill you. I've hurt you. And I wish to go on I shall leave you as you left me, as you left her, marooned for all eternity in the center of a dead planet, buried alive. 
buried alive. Okay, now it's time for our listener's choice review. Your pick was Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Now, the original Star Trek only, like, its original run on TV was from 1966 to 69, which is a remarkably short period of time considering the empire it spawned. Uh, the first film, Star Trek The Motion Picture, was released in 1979 after, after the series built up an audience in syndication and was directed by the great Robert Wise of West Side Story and The Day the Earth Stood Still. It was a rush production. Scripts were still being revised as shooting was happening. Special effects people weren't able to deliver. Uh, the budget went up to three times the plan, $15 million, and it was just barely finished before the premiere. Uh, it was considered um, like a minor disappointment, uh, in both critically and in terms of the box office. But it was enough of a success that Paramount committed to a sequel while forcing the show's creator, Gene Roddenberry, out and bringing in a director named Nicholas Meyer, who had never seen an episode of the show before. Uh, and the result is, ironically, what's considered by many to be the best Star Trek film. Released in 1982, it brings back a villain from an episode from season one of the TV series, Space Seed. Khan Noonien Singh, played by Ricardo Montalban, is a genetically engineered super soldier from the eugenics wars mm -hmm. of the 1990s. We all well. remember those. Yep. Who Captain Kirk marooned on a planet 15 years before the start of this movie mm -hmm. um, and went out looking for a lifeless planet on which to test a new terraforming device called Genesis. Mm -hmm. The USS Reliant stumbles across Khan mm -hmm. and his crew. They take over the ship mm -hmm. and soon they're going up against Kirk and his novice crew. We're out on a training run. Okay, so Matt, in the spirit of our earlier discussion, uh, I wanted to ask if you've seen the first film. You have seen yes, the first I have, film. Yes, I have, yes. So what is it? I have not seen the first film. What lucky, is it that you woman. think that, uh, what does this do better that the first one kind of failed at? And how, is this truer to, would you say this is truer to the spirit of the show? Uh, yes, it is truer to the spirit of the show. Although, you know, Having seen a fair number of the original series, I enjoy the old Star Treks. Uh, there are some episodes that are like the first movie. So, it, I mean, it's not unfaithful to the series. I mean, this is sort of uh, faithful to a different side of the series, and obviously it's, it's, it's connected directly to one episode. But it also has more of that sort of swashbuckling kind of naval warfare side of Star Trek. It's less about the haughty totty like, you know, seek out new life yeah. and new civilizations, boldly go, we're explorers, you know, the new frontier in outer space, that whole thing, which probably was Roddenberry's bag. They brought in Nicholas Meyer, who was like, well, let's make an adventure movie, you know, let, let's, let's put some butts in the seats, let's make something exciting, and it worked. Uh, the first movie is really horrible, but it might have more to do with pacing than it does unfaithfulness it i mean the characters are all there and they're basically acting like themselves but it is like a two hour plus and then longer if you watch the director's cut of a bunch of people staring at a view screen and various slowly changing landscapes as they probe deeper and deeper into this big cloud it's literally <laughs> like two hours of people in a spaceship going into a cloud and at the end they find something 
very underwhelming at the center <laughs> of the cloud, which I won't spoil. Okay. And this movie, I, I guess this one has people fighting against each other in a cloud, which is way better or something. That's why this one is, is, a, is a much better film. What did you think? You having never seen a Star Trek movie. I have never seen a Star Trek movie. And I'm movie. sure being totally lost and not being familiar with anything. <laughs> were you able to follow it and did you I, enjoy it? It was. Some of the characters were, were familiar to me for some reason. Yeah. I, I actually did really enjoy it. There was I didn't expect the kind of mortality, the contemplation of mortality, but actually that between um, Kirk as an admiral, kind of worried that his best days are behind him. Right, it's and his like birthday. Leading, right, he's got this like desk job now, essentially, mm-hmm. even though he got a promotion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the the fact that he has a son that he's never really interacted with. The Genesis device, which is this like powerful weapon as well as this amazing you know thing of creation Mm -hmm. and then the death of spock at the end i think all kind of tie together really nicely to this contemplation of mortality without meshing up too neatly you know like it's just all these different elements together and i thought that that actually came together in a kind of poetic way considering the you know the basic arc of the story right. i thought that that was actually really nice yeah the passage of time is something that's played really well here i mean they are these guys are getting older what's kind of amazing it, this would have been the great last star trek film if this could have been the last one because it is all about mortality and there is the the death at the center of it but then they made like four more movies, so that kind of undercut that a little <laughs> bit. But you do have the fact that even Khan, you know, he's a guy who's been marooned for 15 years. And when we saw him, he was this one guy, and he looked very different. There was no prosthetic chest when he was on the original <laughs> series. And now, having been waylaid on this dead planet for 15 years, being forced to survive under these horrible conditions, he's just gone even more insane, and he's become even more evil. And you just get the sense of of what that passage of time has done to him. So yeah, it it kind of is a a pretty profound movie in some ways, even amidst all the cheesiness and some of the effects are a little tacky and it is a Star Trek movie and live long and prosper and all that stuff. But it's uh, the end of the movie I think is actually pretty effective. I think it is too. When he says, I feel young, it's, it's moving, you know, like considering everything that has happened. uh, I thought that that was actually really well done. Mm -hmm. And given that, you know, Shatner is not necessarily, one of the great nuanced thespians of our era but i think that in that he manages something like really kind of like emotionally he gives kind of a good performance in this movie i'm ready to go to bat for william shatner in this movie i think he's really good i think that he is also balanced off really well by montalban like they both have hammy tendencies Mm -hmm. but it actually really works especially having both of them in the film right it really works especially considering they never meet up face to face well i think that helps the hams are kept separate if the hams were (laughs) intermingling it might have gotten a little too crazy no ham on ham action right the puffed chests butting up against one another might have been a little too much but the fact that they are separate and that they never meet face to face i think adds something to it that it's almost like this kind of bloviating blustering machismo thing going on that they're doing through these computer screens i think i think that works if they were if they were sword fighting or something god forbid it, it would have been be too much hilarious yeah. yeah and i mean i think that also it you know the death of spock is really played quietly you know, it happens after the exciting rescue, and he, of course, being Spock, does not get all mushy about it. Right. It's <laughs> right a Vulcan. Hand, which makes it really poignant. You know, it's a really sad scene. Uh, and the fact that they have that interaction before he dies is incredibly right. sad. Right. You know, and the, the fact that it's a quietly played out makes it all the more powerful. Like, it genuinely is. Uh, it's a great scene. Yeah. Again, only undercut by the fact that he came back in the next movie and then exactly. they made three more movies. And there's but- a whale movie, right? Yes, there is a yes. Star Trek IV: The Voyage Home is about whales. That's all you know about it. 
We'll have to do that one as a future listener's oh, choice. Yeah, You'll yeah. enjoy that. They I'm travel sure back will. through time as right. well it to is, San yeah. Francisco in the 1980s. But yeah, that is a great scene. And I like that scene because they don't play it as like, well, we've, it's a race against time to save Spock. You know, he's dead. He's all, I think Scotty's like, he's already dead. And then, and then, so there's no suspense about it. It's just like this, you just let it be about the characters and, and these characters who, as you said, it's kind of amazing how little time they spent together in terms of, there's only three seasons of this show, the original series, and then one movie before this and a couple of uh, animated series seasons, if we want to count those, I don't (laughs) know if we want to, but that, that, that friendship has this huge weight to it. And they did seem sort of unkillable, like so many characters in serialized fiction do. So the fact that it is about mortality and then that one of them, uh, the one who's Vulcan and should be more, you know, live, he lives, supposed to live like 300 years or whatever, that he's the one who dies. It does add this extra sense of weightiness to it. I mean, I was getting, it was getting a little dusty there as I was watching the end of the movie, I have to say. And oh, I've seen this sad. movie many times before and at, at Maybe it's maybe I'm getting older. Maybe I need to get my reading glasses and uh, look at them longingly. But I was I was getting a little choked up by uh, Kirk and Spock at the end of the movie for sure. Yeah, I think it also I like the way that it used uh, the film used the Kobayashi Maru, which like I've you know seen in the the new reboot. Star Trek, the J.J. Yeah. Abrams. They reuse it, it exactly, and I know it like becomes this is the first time it's come up, right? Correct. But it's used later in different iterations. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that it was it made a nice start to the film and also like. Another not too clunky metaphor, Mm -hmm. given the no win scenario. Exactly. And that kind of that tying into the idea of like, that also means that you've never accepted that you can lose. You've never accepted death. He's never actually faced death. He's always cheated it. Yeah. And that here he's had to actually face it. Yeah. Yeah. It works really well. I mean, I have to say we're talking about it. I had seen this movie so many times as a kid where, you know, you don't really take the full weight of what's going on. And, and a little bit older it is actually a really good movie beyond just being the best star trek movie or a better sequel to the first star trek movie it does work as sort of a meditation on these themes actually really well beyond the kirk and spock dynamic did you have any other favorite characters from this large cast that you were like i would i would want to see another star trek movie to watch more of blank uh i don't know that anyone jumped out at me i mean like i was familiar with the basic characters of the show i did feel like uh i know she was a new introduction but kirstie alley's character is kind of handled weirdly savick yeah that uh she's clearly intended to be the new spock exactly like here's the new character we're gonna we're gonna bump off spock but if we ever do more of these she'll be spock yes and i thought i felt like that was the whole point of her character like there was very little development other than that Mm -hmm. so that was a little clunky Mm -hmm. uh but I mean, Other I suppose that, that you can't really. you can't just have all of the old characters, especially if you're going to get rid of one of them. Mm-hmm. So, and having seen the J.J. Abrams movie, did this change your perception of that movie in any way? Did it make you appreciate that movie more, or did you make make you think, well, I mean, this, you know, how do you compare them? Well, I thought I I liked the J.J. Abrams movie. I mm-hmm. thought it Me did too. a really good job of also kind of a different take on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I thought that, I mean, one of the things I think I most appreciated about that was that it managed to come up with a way to diverge its timeline so that rather than being beholden to these original films, it could, you know, had a gesture towards them, but mm-hmm. also was like going off in its own direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I think it just made me appreciate it more because I thought it was a really smart way to take on like a revered franchise, you know, without 
having to be too to keep too closely to it Mm -hmm. yeah Uh, one last thing that i was impressed by that i really wouldn't have noticed as a younger viewer is the fact that as you mentioned the first movie went so wildly over budget they really had they were told to scale back they had to really make a low budget movie this time and watching it this time you really see how few places they go and how how small scale it is it doesn't necessarily feel small because it is an adventure and there's this, these great battles and all that sort of thing. But in terms of the number of sets and the places they go and, you know, they start off in like Earth on and like these – it's all interiors. Yeah. They're on Earth on these interiors then they're in the spaceship and then the other spaceship, which is essentially the same spaceship that they probably just redressed. They did. That's why you never see – like part That's of the reason they, they never – yeah. And then they go, to the, they go to the planet where the Genesis device is and that's underground and then, right. you know, and there's like one really horrible map painting of what the Genesis device has done. But really, that's about it in terms of exterior shots. It's all interior places that are just easy to shoot on a low budget. And I was kind of impressed watching it this time how big the movie was able to feel, even though when you kind of look at it closely, it was clearly a low budget operation. And I thought that was that was pretty impressive. Yeah, and I you know, I think that practical effects always tend to age a little better. Mm-hmm. And I you know, even in the kind of in the nebula in the duel where the Mutara like, Nebula Exactly. It's you know, models kind of fly like flying by each other. Very I still slowly. think it it uh it doesn't look bad. No. You know? No, that that the matte painting of the Genesis thing was the only effect that I looked at. I was like, oh, that looks that looks pretty dated. Yeah. All right. L- to wrap it up, two things. Okay. One. So in this movie, Spock dies. Yes. Now you know he comes back to life. Yes. I want you to speculate how you think they bring him back to life, having no knowledge. Oh, I already know a little bit about this. Oh, you do? Yeah. But obviously, like, his body becomes a child because it's on this planet now, right? And then they use the memories that he left... <laughs> and then he's back to normal. Obviously, they didn't uh, make it too difficult to follow. Okay, question number two, having seen this one, having not seen any of the others except the new one, are you at all curious to see the other movies or to watch the old series or anything like that? Yeah, a little bit. I like I don't know if if coming in on like what's been declared one of the best things that the show does. Right. That also gives you the burden of being like, well, a lot of the other things are not going to be up to this standard. And that is true. Yeah. So uh, that's but yeah, I mean, you know, it's one of my big pop culture blind spots. Mm -hmm. I should probably start looking into it a bit. So yeah, a little bit. Vaguely. All right. Vaguely. We'll take it. The, the Trekkie in me will take it. All right. Well, that's Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and it is available on Netflix. Watch instantly. Okay. Next up is Behind the Eight Ball, in which we give you a rapid fire countdown of three picks that are new to streaming, two that are expiring soon, and one pick chosen blindly by number from our Netflix queues. Matt, are you ready? I am ready. Okay. Three new films. Okay. First up, uh, available on Netflix, Goodbye First Love from director Mia Hansen Love. This is a really beautiful French film released earlier this year in the United States about a teenage couple. They break up. And what happens to the young girl and the couple when they break up and she goes off and tries to make her own identity? And then what happens later when they meet and reconnect? So that's Goodbye First Love, available on Netflix. Also available on Netflix, one of my favorite uh, horror movies of the last decade or so, Slither from director James Gunn. A very interesting take on basically the zombie movie, although it has kind of an alien twist on the zombie movie and some very interesting metaphorical, allegorical elements to it as well. James Gunn is the guy who's going to be directing Guardians of the Galaxy for Marvel. So if you haven't been familiar with his stuff, take a look at Slither on Netflix. And last, on Hulu, almost as profound a film as Slither, Umberto D. by Vittorio De Sica, the the great film, Italian uh, neorealist about a man 
nearing the end of his life and his dog. And if you know anything about me, you need to know nothing more than that to know that this made me cry like a baby. That's Umberto D on Hulu. All right. Two expiring films. Okay. Expiring on October 18th. Kevin Smith's last film to date, Red State. This was his attempt to make a horror film. I didn't find it entirely successful, but I didn't find it entirely unsuccessful either. I think it's an interesting film. Uh, Certainly, if you're a fan of his movies, it's an interesting film. Expiring on October 19th is the 2010 film Holy Rollers. Also not an entirely successful film, but not an entirely uninteresting one either. It's about Hasidic Jews in this drug smuggling ring, and it stars Jesse Eisenberg. This is pre-social uh, network Jesse Eisenberg. Uh, again, not a great film, but an interesting one. Worth checking out. Expiring on Netflix on October 19th. Okay, and one from your queue. You gave me number one. Yes. I guess you thought that this would be the next film I'll be watching, I suppose. And it's Artists and Models, the Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis film directed by Frank Tasson, where they play comic book artists. And uh, I'm actually doing a a panel, or I'm part of a panel, at the New York Comic Con this weekend on Thursday night about the interplay between comics and films, and so I've been watching a few movies to talk about, and this is one of the ones that we might bring up at the panel, so that's Artisan Models, and that's on Netflix. Okay, are you ready for your own countdown? I am. All right, three new releases, go. Okay, first is Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter, 1957 film. It is now streaming on Hulu, classic comedy starring Tony Randall as an ad executive who tries to get Jane Mansfield, playing a famous actress, to endorse a lipstick his company is representing. It involves pretending to be uh, her new boyfriend, and all kinds of com- complications ensue. It's a that's another Frank Tashlin movie. It's two Frank Tashlin movies in a row. I'm sorry. Go ahead. It's okay. Uh, next is Monsoon Wedding, 2001 film streaming on Netflix from Mira Nair. It's a uh, big ensemble film. It's set during a Punjabi wedding. It's an arranged marriage, uh, and it's just lively and warm and funny and sexy and really inter- does interesting things in terms of dealing with how the modern kind of comes up against the traditional in these families and in this ceremony. So uh, that's on Netflix. The next one is Hospitality, which is a 2010 film streaming on Netflix. This is actually a Japanese film, and it's about a man whose family owns a printing press, and they live in the same building. He ends up taking on this employee who claims to be the son of a man who's fa- uh, who invested a large amount of money in the company. So uh, he feels beholden to this man, hires him. The guy has a white wife who claims to be from Brazil but sounds American. And then more people and more people start arriving, and it becomes more funny and chaotic and surreal from there. And it becomes a kind of interesting allegory for globalizing Japan. Uh, it's a really interesting film, and that's streaming on Netflix. Okay, two expiring titles. Expiring from Netflix on October 20th is Fados. It's Carlos Saura's film about the Portuguese musical uh Saw a tradition of uh, the Fado, as as well as the city of Lisbon. It's got songs and musical numbers and is overall just a very lush film. And expiring on October 21st is Leap Year. Not the miserable romantic comedy starring Amy Adams and Matthew Good, but a miserable in another way Mexican film <laughs> about a young woman who works as a freelance writer and at night has a string of increasingly unsafe looking romantic encounters. Uh, and that is uh, expiring October 21st. Okay, and one random film from your queue. You gave me number 40, which is a film that I've been meaning to see for a long time uh, and have not been able to get to yet, which is Paris is Burning, the 1990 documentary from Jeannie Livingston about the drag scene of the mid to late 80s in New York, including these balls. They had uh, 
you know, kind of competitions and they're very ceremonial. And it's supposed to be a snapshot of uh, this, you know, kind of time in the scene that is since gone. So that's Paris is Burning, uh, streaming on Netflix. Okay, all right. It's time to get to our listeners' choice options for next week's show. Allison, I think I've got the first one here. Mm-hmm. It is called Get the Gringo, a 2012 film directed by Adrian Grunberg. This stars one Mel Gibson as a man who ends up in a notorious Mexican prison after his attempt to get away with a million-dollar stash ends in his arrest. And, and this was supposed to be sort of one of Mel Gibson's kind of latest comebacks, I suppose. And it went straight to video, but actually got some good reviews from people who saw it. People who saw it liked it, for the most part, and said it was a surprisingly solid movie. So we were sort of interested to check it out, maybe talk a little Mel Gibson, invite... God only knows the feedback we'll get Uh if we do that, but we thought that would be potentially an interesting subject, not only for review, but for a a theme for a podcast. So that's Get the Gringo, and that's available on Netflix. Uh, Our next pick is also available on Netflix. I think all three this time are. All three on Netflix this week. So no Uh, one can complain that the the option that's on Netflix always wins our listener's choice, because this time they all are on Netflix. Mm -hmm. Well, so this one is uh, another controversial film in a different way. It is Natural Born Killers, the 1994 film from Oliver Stone, about two... uh, uh, serial killers, basically, who are came from traumatic pasts and fall in love and become media darlings as well as murderers. They are played by Woody Harrelson and Juliette Lewis. The film also stars Rodney Dangerfield, Robert Downey Jr. It was based on a screenplay by Quentin Tarantino, though I think there was a lot of revision done. But this was uh, you know, a film that at the time attracted a lot of media attention mm-hmm. itself for its violence and its content. Yes, But it satirizes... Uh, people's love, basically. People love them and kind of make them into idols. Right. Uh, I have not seen this film since it was in theaters. Right. Neither of us have seen this one in at least 15 years. Yeah. So I'm very curious to see how it looks these days. Yeah. How does it hold up? Does it look dated? Is it very 90s? Does it does it feel... Does it feel prescient in some ways? And and I think the whole controversy thing could make a potentially good theme as well. We could talk about controversial movies or maybe... Uh, star-crossed uh, lovers who like killing people, something like that. There's a, a few good, options there. It's a good there. niche, yeah. yeah. There's a few options there. Okay, our last option is another new film from 2012. It's called Indie Game, the movie, directed by Lisanne Peugeot and James Swirsky. This is a popular documentary from this year's Sundance Film Festival, and it's also been optioned as a fictional HBO series by Scott Rudin, so I guess we'll be looking for that in the future. The movie itself, though, follows several independent game designers as they painstakingly develop their games and hope for breakthrough success. It also explores the quirky sensibility these personalities bring to their art form. I've heard as many good things as I've heard about Get the Gringo. I've heard even more about this film. I haven't had a chance to check it out. I'm really looking forward to... I guess we could do a video game theme, perhaps. That might be uh, horrifying for us, <laughs> but entertaining for the listeners. We could talk about video game movies or depictions of video games on screen or something like that. Definitely. So those are our options. All right. Well, which movie should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? You can send your picks to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com or enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, October 15th at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, which is FilmSpottingSVU. And you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on next week's episode, which will be on Monday, October 22nd, give or take a day. FilmSpottingSVU.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. 
The Film Spotting SVU Remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.com. And we'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie review you pick. And in the meantime, you can follow Allison and I on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show once again at at FilmSpottingSVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from you guys, the SVU listeners. For FilmSpotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.